Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And this month, we're joined by a special guest, Hila Ratsavi. Hila has joined us in the past to discuss Eddie Hilesum. Hila is a poet, writer, and editor whose book of poems, There Are Still Woods, was published by June Road Press in September 2022 and won a 2023 Gold Nautilus Award and was a finalist for the National Indie Excellence Award. Hila is joining us from Oak Park, Illinois. Hi, Hila. Hi. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. This month, we're talking about Jewish poetry, and I am going to kick it over to Mimi to tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to thank Tamar and Zahava for indulging me in this topic. Tamar and Zahava each have endorsed poems throughout the seven years that we've been, no, even more. Like nine years that we've been doing this like podcast. Like nine years that we've been doing this podcast. It's wild. And... I have to say, I've always been really impressed by your ability or like, where do you even um, come across poetry in your lives? And recently, a few of my friends have started sending me poems or even writing their own poems. And I, I just realized that I don't have much fluency or comfort reading poems but I wanted to explore that in this space with both of you and with a poet. So I'm really happy that Hila could join us for this exploration. When I put out the idea that we would talk about Jewish female poets, Zahava reminded us of Linda Paston, who she has recommended before, who actually passed away this year. And we found another poet who I don't think I was familiar with, certainly Louise Glick, also passed away. So what we're going to do today is learn a little bit about three American Jewish poets and read together one poet or more, one poem or more by each, and just discuss them and learn from each other what we liked, what we didn't like, and what we think it means. We're going to start off with Louise Glick. She was born in New York City in 1943. Her Jewish grandparents owned a grocery store after they settled in New York City. One thing we learned from her obituary is that her father helped invent the X-Acto knife. <laughs> That's amazing. I Great. Louise was the United States Poet Laureate in 2003. She received a National Humanities Medal from um, President Obama in 2015. She received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2020, and she died at the age of 80 this past October. I tried reading a little bit about what do people say about Louise Glick's poetry. Just one line that I learned is that she she's known for poetry that sort of brings together personal themes and feminist themes and reads them through the lens of maybe classical mythology or the imagery of nature or religious imagery. And tonight we are going to read a poem of hers called A Fable, which is one of them that does read an emotional scene through religious imagery. Zahava, would you read A Fable for us? Sure. I did this old school and printed out the poems on paper so that I could have them next to me. Okay. A Fable. Two women with the same claim came to the feet of the wise king. Two women, but only one baby. 
The king knew someone was lying. What he said was, let the child be cut in half. That way no one will go empty-handed. He drew his sword. Then of the two women, one renounced her share. This was the sign, the lesson. Suppose you saw your mother torn between two daughters. What could you do to save her, but be willing to destroy yourself? She would know who was the rightful child, the one who couldn't bear to divide the mother. Hila, where should we start? <laughs> Wait, I have, I am curious, do any of you have sisters? Mimi, you have a sister. Yeah, we all, it looks like, have at least one. I have, I have one sister. I have two. I read this as really a poem about being a sister in competition for your mother's love. Mm. And I'm super curious if that's a reading that tells you me more about, <laughs> tells you more about myself than about the poem, or if that's something that you all saw here as well. I, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's unavoidable, but it's not where my brain went, which is interesting. It was more about the, because in the biblical story, you're always so focused on the mothers and just thinking about what it means to be a child in a role of emotional responsibility for a parent mm -hmm. and what that transition is as you grow up. I think that's the relationship that I focused on here. I loved this poem. Something going on in my life right now is that my siblings and I are trying to decide sort of what comes next for my mom, who's dealing with some cognitive challenges and still living alone. And we all have slightly different visions and hopes and fears. It's not a competition for her love. It's like a competition over the future or this, this tugging that's happening with her right in the middle. Yeah, I think it's so beautiful to hear all of you kind of reading, or not all of you, but Tamara and Mimi reading your own families into this poem because I think she just gets right to the heart of these complicated relationships so perfectly. And it's also interesting to think about the use of the the biblical text and the biblical story and how she applies it to a personal story, a personal relationship. You know, you could imagine the poem just split in half, you know, a poem that's just about the biblical story or a poem that's just about the story about her, her personal um, experience with her mother. But, you know, what happens when we bring these two together? What, what is the power that the biblical text brings to the personal? And even just think about, like, the order of the presentation, you know, that we're sort of going through this narrative that most folks are familiar with, you know, this pretty classic biblical story. And then suddenly we get the, suppose you saw your mother torn between two daughters. It's just such a, it's a surprise. And I think that's partly why it can hit the reader so powerfully is that you're just sort of like, where is this going? You know, she's just kind of retelling this biblical story. And then suddenly it's like a completely new context and it brings it so close to home. I love that there's not even a break in the text. It's not a new verse. It is just a single column of experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes that juxtaposition all the more powerful. It's also really interesting to me that the biblical story is about a boy child. Right. And this says, suppose you saw your mother torn between two daughters. It really makes me think of the title. Like the beginning of the story is a fable. And then the second in Orthodox day school, we would often talk about the the Mashal and the Nimshal. <laughs> like the, 
we have the like parable in the beginning and then we have like what's going on um, at the end. And I just really, I don't know, I found that super powerful. And I also think it's so interesting that this poem ends with the image of a divided mother. Like the idea in the in the poem, I mean, in the original story in, in the um, Tanakh, it's about the baby being divided and the poem turns it on its head and says like, actually the mother is being divided by these two daughters. And it's that you have to destroy yourself mm -hmm. in order to not divide the mother. That's just like Oof. so amazing. I mean, just it's such a surprise in the poem for me. And then I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's just so powerful. It actually gave me another lens for the biblical story too, that I, I think the mother who says, fine, just let the baby live, is in some way destroying a part of herself, right? By mm. forfeiting her right even to half of a baby, um, which as we all know is is not a baby. I think because I am, as I told you guys, I'm I'm sandwiched right now between caring for my mother and caring for my children. I really saw the sandwich here and imagined that the two mothers coming forward over one baby are the same two women. That they're also the two daughters. Yeah, that's my sandwiching that I put myself in the adult female lead, whatever. I think to me, what it really made me think about is what my concept of devotion is like when I'm thinking about the devotion of parenthood and the devotion of daughterhood. And it's so interesting. I was about to say childhood, not daughterhood, because I was I don't mean it to be female specific, but childhood means something entirely separate, which is its own interesting linguistic reality. I think that when we read the original biblical story, Part of it, I mean, I think the thing that it's usually used for in Judaic texts is as proof of how wise King Solomon is. First of all, I love how beside the point the king is in this rendering of the story. Mm -hmm. If your takeaway from the story is primarily about the, the thumb-swishing wisdom of the king, then you are really missing what is going on in that space. The idea of motherly devotion I think culturally, we're familiar with the idea of self-abnegation as a form of parents' devotion. But I think that we don't tend to think of a child's devotion in that way. And that child's devotion is more about being demonstrative and present and that that kind of active connection. And it made me sort of sit back and try and envision the scenario in which this kind of self-abnegation or being willing to destroy yourself would be the thing that was needed for true devotion. It sort of sent me down this road of trying to envision that. There's also something so interesting about the phrase, the rightful child in this context, because like mm. they are your mother torn between two daughters. So there's a mother and there's two daughters, but somehow there's a rightful child. Mm. Which is just like a very interesting thing to ponder. Also very biblical, right? Those what is are, Genesis if right. not somebody who and has the same parent, but only one of them is the rightful child? <laughs> yeah. I think it is one of those things where it's like, on the one hand, so much of the stories in Genesis are about this concept that like just doesn't 
resonate with us now. Like the idea of a birthright that a parent can like bestow upon a child with a blessing is just like kind of not a thing. But then <laughs> speaking only from my own experience, I would say that there's sometimes a feeling that some child is more of a rightful child than others in a family. And that can be really challenging and does cause like lifelong strife sometimes in families. So looking at it from that direction, I can, it makes all of Genesis make a lot more sense. Before we finish up on this poem, I have a confession about Louise Glick, which is that I have always confused her with Louise Erdrich, who <laughs> is a Native American writer. And when Louise Glick died and there were all these eulogies of her, I was like, she's Jewish? I am so surprised. <laughs> I was sure she was Native American. <laughs> Hila, did you have anything else that this poem brought up for you that you wanted to mention? I mean, in, in so many of her poems, relationships, all kinds of relationships are very intense. And so it's it's just interesting to see this one and just thinking of some other poems, some later poems where there's just these like almost scary uh, descriptions of tensions in relationships and um, with children, you know, speaking about, assume, you know, you don't want to assume it's the poet's children, but like poems that sound very personal to a parent-child relationship and and they're just they're intense so this this kind of fits with a lot of other work of hers other poems of hers that i read in preparation for this specifically some of her poems that do rely on classical mythology which i'm not very well versed in i i found myself lost in the poem because i i couldn't pull out, like, what's the story we're referring to? And obviously, we know this story from Tanakh. I guess I'm wondering, with poetry, when they're referring to another story and you can't place it, I don't know. I, I, I don't quite know my question. Like, do I need to go back and read the story? Or is it okay to come with I'm just reading these words for like the the shot, like the straightforward meaning. I think it's both. So I think number one, you're reading the poem as it speaks to you. And I think that almost any poem could have some reference to something that you don't know what it is. Or maybe at first you don't know, or you think, well, it might be this or it might be this. And so that's just one part of the experience of reading the poem. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And first of all, do you like it? You know, or is there anything about it that makes you want to keep reading it? Just like any novel or a movie or a TV show. If you do, and there's something very enticing about it, there's an image or an emotion or musicality to it. And you're like, this is really interesting. And you keep going back and you're like, but there's that reference in there. And I don't know what they're talking about. It makes you want to go look it up and learn. Think about The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. I don't know half of the stuff, you know, like the references, it's like purposefully packed with all kinds of crazy references to so many other texts. And it's that's part of the point. But there's no way that you would know. And it's got all these notes and like other languages that are mixed in there. I think that you're meant to have a certain kind of experience, but you don't have to like every poem. And if you're just like, this is not speaking to me, there's nothing intriguing about this, 
I mean, I love Elliot. Like I would go into it and be like, oh, I want to find out what that means and what that means. But like, if you don't feel that, you don't have to, you know, like mm -hmm. then read something else, you know. <laughs> it is something that I enjoyed reading Jewish female poets and finding the poems that one can read through religious imagery or Jewish imagery. Having that, like being able to pick up on the textual richness of this poem and some of the other ones, like just made it for me so much more of a joy. Okay, I have to tell a story that I don't know if I've ever told Mimi and Tamara this story, but so when I was a senior in college and I took a creative writing class in poetry, um, it's the only time I've ever actually like written for an assignment or, or anything formal, right? Uh, other than just sort of poems for myself or for a friend here and there, which isn't something I've done in a while. I wrote a poem it was called Seminary Friends, and it was about a particular evolving relationship that I'd had with somebody who I had been very close with during my seminary gap year in Israel and how that had shifted in interesting ways over the prior few years. And I wrote it in the way that I wanted to write it, and then I was afraid no one in my class would get any of the references. Like, they just wouldn't understand what on earth I was talking about. And so... When I submitted it for workshop, I footnoted it with explanations. And the professor pulled me aside at the end of class and said, first of all, this is just a hilarious sentence. She said, we mustn't fancy ourselves in a Norton anthology. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so that was great. And I was just... Totally taken aback. And I just, I explained that I'd been so insecure about anyone even understanding what I was trying to say. And then she also gave me what I think was meant to be sort of a, an encouraging or reinforcing talk about writers should not assume a dominant mode of cultural understanding. That by constantly explaining yourself, you assume that everyone else speaks that language and you speak this one. You should present your writing as you are and that there are people who will get it immediately and people who will need to delve further and people to whom it won't speak at all. But that by presuming that you are always the outsider to your reader, you actually undermine your writing. And I found that to be a really powerful concept. Of course, I was writing it for this workshop of a specific group of people, you know, and so I... I knew that none of them were Jewish and that I was writing about this very specific experience. But at the end of the day, I had no idea what their cultural references were or, or who knew what. And I was presuming a, a greater degree of outsider status on myself than, than was probably called for. And I appreciated that. So that's just Mimi, as you're talking about this, that is, that's what I was thinking of. And I just want to echo that too. I had a very similar experience in a college uh, poetry workshop where um it's an amazing poet named Claudia Rankine, and she was at Barnard at the time that I was there. I said to her in a conference, I feel weird about using Jewish and Hebrew vocabulary in a poem. Like, I don't know if I should or I shouldn't, and if it's alienating to the reader, and should I use a footnote, and this and that. And what she said was, if it's a good poem, they'll want to look up those words. And so really the focus is, focus on making a good poem. And yeah, if it includes these cultural references and some words here and there that some people might not know, if you've already drawn them in, they're going to want to go look that stuff up. And so that was really liberating to me. I was like, oh yeah. And I think nowadays, you know, especially with folks 
really embracing, you know, their different identities and, and cultures, like it's much more common for people to put in very culturally specific content and, you know, throwing in other languages, mixing English and Spanish or English and Arabic. And um, we see that in, in a lot of poems these days. So it's, it's much more accepted that you're going to really present your identity authentically through poetry. I think this poem, if I didn't know the biblical story, I would want to know what are we taught. Like, just the the vivid imagery, the, um, I don't know, willing to destroy yourself. I would need to go back and understand where this came from. Such a powerful poem. And, and she also retells it in a way that even if you didn't go back, or if you never learned it, you actually get the story right there. And it's pretty... She gets all the pieces of it, you know. Right. She doesn't need to send you to your Tanakh. She's like, yeah. here's the story. Yeah. All right. This was such a great choice, Mimi. Um, do you want to tell us about the next poet? Yeah. So our second poet is Linda Paston. Um, she was born in 1932 in the Bronx, what I what I read was that she drew inspiration from pretty ordinary events. And it sounds like she became a poet a little bit later in life. Something I read said she struggled with the polished floor syndrome, feeling like she couldn't be the wife and mother that she thought she had to be and a poet at the same time. So she draws inspiration from ordinary events, and her poems are all very, what, what I read was that they're all very sort of concentrated and she had this impulse to condense to get it all get a lot of emotional complexity into a very concise poem she died in january of this year in chevy chase maryland at the age of 90. we are going to read a poem of hers called mosaic tomorrow you want to read it sure mosaic by linda paston one the sacrifice on this tile, the knife, like a sickle moon, hangs in the painted air, as if it had learned a dance of its own, the way the boy has among the vivid, breakable flowers, the way Abraham has among the boulders, his two feet heavy as stones. 2. Near Sinai God's hand here is the size of a tiny cloud, and the wordless tablets he holds out curve like the temple doors. Moses reaching up, must see on their empty surface laws chiseled in his mind by the persistent wind of the desert, by wind of the bulrushes. Three, the flight into Egypt. We know by the halos that circle these heads like rings around planets that the small donkey has carried his burden away from the thunder of the Old Testament into the lightning of the new. Four, at the Armenian tile shop. Under the bright glazes, Esau watches Jacob, Cain watches Abel. With the same heavy eyes, the tile-maker's Arab assistant watches me, all of us wondering why, for every pair, there is just one blessing. Oh my God, that ending. Mm -hmm. That really gets you. Mm. When I read this poem, it's hard for me to keep all of the pieces of it in my head at the same time, which is why I think the title Mosaic is so smart. I mean, I know it's also about a mosaic, but it really does feel like there's a lot going on. There's like different stories. There's the idea of different religions. 
there's the like political reality and there's like a sense of danger and competition in all of them. And it's so interesting. I mean, you don't realize how literal the word mosaic is until the very end of the poem where you go through these three scenes and then you're located in the Armenian tile shop where she is, oh, apparently actually literally looking at a tile in a mosaic for each of these scenes. And for me, you know, I went to seminary in the old city of Jerusalem and walked through the Armenian quarter daily. And I immediately have a very specific, you know, visual memory that I associate with like the Armenian tile shop and this kind of biblical scenes and what the artistic style is likely incredibly visual and for me like very concrete. The immediacy of it not being a biblical scene, but being a physical thing in front of you that you're surveying, it kind of startles me at the end. I think it pushes you to personalize what otherwise might be a little bit of a remote and chilly rendering of these religious images. It's kind of like breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. You know, she's suddenly standing there in the scene and it's, it is, it's very jarring. I love it. I also was surprised that we're standing in a tile shop. But then if you go back to the very beginning, number one, the sacrifice on this tile, mm-hmm. the knife. But that intro on this tile, you're immediately struck by the knife, of course, and the sickle moon. And mm-hmm. But she has started the painting at the very beginning. You just got wrapped up in the action. I also think the title Mosaic, it also could refer to Moses, mm-hmm. like Mosaic Law. Right. At my old job, I worked in genetics, and there was something that's called a mosaic in genetics. And I had to ask one of the genetic counselors that I was working with, I was like, this is embarrassing, but like, is this about Moses? Like, is this a Jewish genetic issue? Or is this like mosaic like the tiles? Because I was like, I don't know anything about genetics. Like, it could be either way. (laughs) Um, It was the tile. (laughs) But I think like, the fact that this kind of goes both ways and particularly the stanza near Sinai that has Moses in it, I really loved because there's the desert and there's the bulrushes. So it's like Moses ends his life in the desert, but his story really begins with him in the little ark on the Nile being surrounded by the bulrushes. So I just thought that was so beautifully done. I really loved that little piece of it. Can I ask a very literal question? Again, this is me trying to find, like, what are we referring to here? In the third stanza, the flight into Egypt, she says, We know by the halos that circle these heads like rings around planets that the small donkey has carried his burden away from the thunder of the Old Testament into the lightning of the new. Meaning that perhaps in this tile, we're actually getting a story from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because And we know that because they're hills. That's what I thought. That's what I thought too. Which makes sense if we're in an Armenian tile shop. Like they're right. Right, going to be more interested in the New Testament. Yeah, this is something I had to Google because I'm too Jewish to know things about the New Testament, but that it's a New Testament story about Jesus' childhood that's recounted in the Gospel of Matthew. And not something I had ever previously bothered to look up when reading this poem, because this was one that I had read in the past. One thing that I love about this is the double meaning of some of the descriptive imagery. So like in the Binding of Isaac first, the sacrifice, the vivid breakable flowers, which of course a ceramic tile is itself breakable, and there's a fragility to anything rendered this way, but you also, and of course any 
flower is breakable. This flower is actually more solid painted on pottery than it is in nature. And just the the idea of what do we mean when we say breakable? And also just in the second verse in Near Sinai, the the blankness of the tablets. Mm. These wordless tablets are wordless in all likelihood because that's a fine detail that didn't get rendered on this particular tile, but at the same time, the the blankness of God's word is itself such a powerful and lonely image. I think she does so much with so few words here. It's incredible. And, and I find it really evocative, but also every religious image here is a lonely one. It's mm. mm. interesting. Yeah. And there's, I also noticed that about breakable, I immediately felt like it was the breakable, you know, mosaic. And then and there's so much like reference to things like the stones, you know, two feet heavy as stones feels like the mosaic. And then the, also the chiseled tablets, um, they all feel like they are pieces of that mosaic in a very physical way, which is very powerful. I know it was not written to be read with the Louise Glick poem that we just read, but it's an amazing pair for that because it ends with all of us wondering why for every pair there's just one blessing which is very much what <laughs> um, a fable is also talking about. Yeah, I was thinking that while we were reading a fable, I didn't want to mention it. I was like, oh my God. It's just like, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> I mean, it, it just shines so much light back on the biblical text. I mean, I think we, you know, you kind of already know this, but then just seeing it in this compressed form, all of those relationships in the Torah are just so, like all the sibling relationships and then between the different groups of people, it's just all so contentious and there's no, there's no real redemption <laughs> in, in many of these stories. There's just a lot of strife and a lot of competition and fighting over the one blessing. It just brings that so clearly into that last stanza there in the poem. And, and with the Arab assistant, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is it. You know, this is just, this is the truth. But it's there from the beginning. You know, we have this recurrent of Jewish and Christian and Muslim throughout the poem. And I didn't think of this until much later in the poem. But going back to the first stanza, I'm assuming the knife like a sickle moon hangs, that that moon imagery is itself like it, like a Muslim crescent image, mm. that we have that from the beginning. And then Moses as this unifying present figure in all three religious traditions in the middle. And then you have the movement from Old to New Testament and then immediately you're located in this Christian Armenian setting with this Jewish poet looking at Old and New Testament images in the presence of this Muslim assistant, I'm assuming, that all of those things are threaded throughout in this really present way. But it, I don't think it really struck me until I got to that last stanza. Yeah. yeah. I do think this is a really atypical poem for this poet, though. Um, having read a bunch of other poems by Landa Paston. And I think also if you read some of the obituaries of her, there's a lot of talk about her as a very domestic poet, writing about the home and the family and women and motherhood and relationships in this very intimate way in ways that are sort of defiant about those things being important and literary themes. And this is, while obviously not an impersonal poem, it is also... I guess it's, it's more obviously lofty, I think, than a lot of the very feet on the ground and gaze in the home poems that you get from Linda Pass in a lot of the time. 
One of my favorite anecdotes that I read in obituaries about Linda Paston was she was named Poet Laureate of the state of Maryland. I think maybe early 2000s, she was asked, allegedly, you know, would you write poems for state events? And she apparently quickly said, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, (laughs) she's not going to write you a poem for the, you know commencement of University of Maryland or something, because like you said, Zahava, her focus is very much on the home, the intimate, yeah, bringing that into sort of the mundane of everyday life. But I do love how the poem, just like the Glick poem, ends on the personal and really like saves it for, for the ending, which I think makes it that much more powerful. If she had started, you know, I'm always thinking about the craft of the poem, like if she had started the poem with I was walking through the Armenian quarter and I saw this (laughs) store and I walked in and I saw the Arab assistant and we were looking at each other. Like, you're just like, uh, all right, fine. But like, she starts from within the mosaic and it's just so powerful being led through these different scenes. And then we're like, oh my God, she's standing there and it's happening. And the same thing with the Glick poem. It's like, okay, we're going through the Solomon story. And then suddenly it's like, oh, suppose, you know, and she's so casual, like, suppose, you know, there was this mother and two daughters, like, hint, hint. And she doesn't ever say, like, me or I, but they both so powerfully make it personal in very, very few words and and tell a whole story about relationships with very few words in both of these poems, which I think is just an amazing achievement. Let's talk a little bit about our third poet of the night. We're going to talk about Alicia Ostriker. Ostriker was born in 1937 in Brooklyn. I found it important just to say what years and where these women were born because they're actually all born in the New York area. Um, Paston in 32, Ostriker 37, and Glick in 43. So you, you can sort of imagine, it sounds like all experienced the New York Jewish sort of socioeconomic leaps too in their lifetimes, like very humble beginnings with their grandparents and then parents or in their generation finding some wealth, success, et cetera. And then I think they all kind of moved out to the burbs in some way. So anyway, Ostriker won the 2009 Jewish Book Award in Poetry. One thing I read said that from one work to the next, her tone may leap from angry and confrontational to lyrical and gentle, meditative to brash. It sounds like she's known for bringing feminism into her poetry, for bringing Jewish midrash and spirituality into her poetry, and also that she writes criticism of poetry and brings that as well. First of all, I just want to reiterate that Ostriker is still alive. And I'm so grateful to, there's a sadness to being introduced to poets who have passed. And it's very comforting to now read a poet who might still be creating poetry in the world. So we are going to read by Ostriker, What is Needed After Food. Hila, would you read this one for us? Sure. So this poem, just to prep folks who are not looking at it, um, starts with an epigraph, which is a quote from the poet Yehuda Amichai. What is needed after food? The darkness doesn't war against the light. It carries us forward to another light. 
in my land called holy, they won't let eternity be. They've divided it into little religions, zoned it for God zones, broken it into fragments of history, sharp and wounding unto death. Yehuda Amichai, for Linda Zisquit. And so beautiful it cracks the bones, especially Jerusalem, with the luster of her stones, the hurt in her eyes, and our dreams for her children, a triangle, beauty, despair, hope, the whole mishpacha, pulling three ways at the same time, like the people in so many families, fighting but joined at the hip, or call it a sandwich, despair the filling embraced by the bread of beauty and hope. Like a manna we eat every day, sent from above. While on earth in Jerusalem, my friend's husband and son relax from a Sabbath meal like well-fed beasts, happily slumped watching the aftermath of a game where the Nazareth team has just won and vaulted from the bottom of their league to the top the players have stripped off their shirts, hugging and dancing, circle dancing, belly dancing, waving at crowds in the stands to make them cheer louder. The coach strips his shirt from his hairy barrel chest, climbs a wire fence, wobbles and waves his hips. When someone asks how he feels about his team, a mix of Jews, Muslims, and one Nigerian, he himself is Druze. He punches the air and roars. I beat them all. I beat Arafat. I beat Sharon. I show them we love each other. We watch a while. The celebration is still going on when we quit to go back to the kitchen, where loaves of beauty and hope stand on the counter and the cup of despair goes on the shelf. My friend and I, we don't ask for much. We read Amichai. We're not messianic. We don't expect utopia, which is, anyway, another name for a smiling prison. But love is a good idea, we think. Why on earth not? Simple women that we are, simple mothers cleaning up the kitchen after one meal to make it ready for the next. Mm. I almost don't want to say anything about that. I just kind of want to leave it. There's so much here. I know. It's so good. Oh, my God. And the title is perfect. It's just so yeah. great. <laughs> I need help with this one. I'm struggling with it. Mm. It feels, I'm struggling with the end. Like, I feel like I understand what's going on. And then I'm, I'm having trouble with simple women that we are, simple mothers cleaning up the kitchen after one meal to make it ready for the next. Like on the one hand, that image really resonates with me because I feel like I spend my whole life cleaning up my kitchen and then getting it dirty again when I cook. But I'm struggling to see how it connects to everything else in the poem. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I read it as we're in this scene. I mean, she doesn't actually tell us right away. We only hear at the end that these are two women who are mothers in this scene. But we're in someone's house. They're watching a game. And there's this very male display of machismo in this this whole scene. And it's like, look at look how great we are. You know, we're we're defying all the the odds and the stereotypes and whatever, which, you know, on the surface you can read as just, yay, you know, great. But then it's still the women who have to clean up 
after this event took place, you know, that the hanging out, the Shabbat meal and the, the watching of the game. To me, it felt like very simply and just confirming, you know, very fundamental belief that I already have. So maybe I'm reading it into the poem, but that like men are the ones who create these wars and these divisions and these tribes and women are the ones who are just cleaning up after the men. You know, even when they're celebrating, like, look at us defying everything. In the end, what happens? Women are cooking and cleaning. <laughs> that's that's what I, that's how I read it. You know, especially because like the maleness of that scene, you know, the hairy barrel chest and mm -hmm. the, it's just, he strips his shirt. Like it's so patriarchal and it's, it's just really over the top. So, and also it's like, why give that scene so much of the poem, you know, it's like so many stanzas in the poem are just devoted to describing that scene. So to me, it felt like it was like very much a point about maleness. I think what I got from it was a little bit of a variation on that, which is when we talk about war and peace in and around Israel, that the conversation is always a thousand layers of, yes, but it's more complicated than that. And no, it's even more complicated than that. It's much more complicated than that. And, you know, I do this too. I mean, I, generally speaking, it is more complicated than whatever has just been said. But the notion that anybody who wants to embrace peace, wants to embrace love, is simple to the point of wrong, you know, that simple women that we are, simple mothers cleaning up the kitchen, right, that the great men in the conversation would dismiss that perspective, would dismiss trying to look for the peaceful and the loving and the domestic, the connected, as insufficiently engaged with the complexity. They're the ones recognizing that it is more complicated than that. They're not saying there is no more than this, but it's saying love is a good idea, we think. Why on earth not? It's a very... We know that this is bigger than this, but that doesn't mean that this isn't strong and powerful and necessary and nobody needs to tell us from on high that we're being too simple for the realities of the situation, I guess. There's something about this Sisyphusian ending of like, we're cleaning up the kitchen to make it ready for the next. So it's like, we're going to clean it just to get it dirty again. I think that's what I'm struggling with most here is like, what is... Well, what is she saying about, about, like, how does that connect to love is a good idea? Why on earth not makes it seem almost sarcastic? I think it is sarcastic. Mm. Because I think there's, there are these other three ingredients that she weaves through, which is beauty, despair, hope. The whole mishpacha pulling three ways at the same time, like the people in so many families. And then after this sort of, ridiculous, like, I beat Arafat, I beat Sharon, like, <laughs> I'll show them what love is. Then the women go back to the kitchen where the loaves of beauty and hope stand on the counter and the cup of despair goes on the shelf. To me, I think she's saying, like, sure, you can play your game and think this is about light and darkness or love and whatever the opposite of love is. But I know that it's just this constant tugging between beauty, despair, and hope. And we'll clean it up, and then it'll tug again. And 
Mm, I like that. Yeah, it's it's like there isn't a solution. You know, it's that we're going to make this meal again and it's going to be those same three ingredients again. And that's how we're we're going to perpetuate this cycle. But in a way, I think the underlying kind of secret feminist message is that like if we keep these binary gender structures in place where the women are cleaning up after the men who are described as well-fed beasts, these yeah. two men, right? It's not... They're you know, like animals. They're <laughs> animals just being fed by women. And um, if we perpetuate this structure that we exist in, then we're going to keep having these same conflicts over and over and over again. And that just feels like what's what's underneath the poem for me. And and that, yeah, and the sarcasm, the sarcasm at the end is very point, you know, simple women that we are. I mean, come on, like, clearly she doesn't believe that, but... She's like, well, what can we do? We're just simple women. We're going to, this is just going to keep happening. Yeah, we're just going to keep cleaning up the freaking kitchen. I was wondering, yeah. what is she saying about Amichai here? <laughs> That's interesting. Right? Be I, you know, there is this, like, there's this feminist criticism of the well-fed beast. She starts with Amichai. And then at the end, she says, we don't ask for much. We read Amichai. We're not messianic. We don't expect utopia. Mm -hmm. What do you think she's saying about his poem or him? What I think of as the most famous Amichai poem, and I could be wrong, but I think when somebody says, oh, what's a poem by Yehuda Amichai? The thing that comes to mind is the diameter of the bomb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of recognizing the human cost, the ripples of human cost of war is something that I think of very powerfully with relation to Yehuda Amichai. And so that isn't that isn't what she quotes here in this epigraph. So maybe that's, but that's immediately what I'm put in mind of when I think this poem and Yehuda Amichai is, that's the connection I made. Hmm. Yeah, we made Amichai because he's the, the classic, you know, Israeli poet about war and peace. And so of course, like, what else are we going to do? We're going to read Amichai. But it's part of this, these lines, you know, we don't ask for much. We read Amichai. We're not messianic. We don't expect utopia. It's like they're not, they're really the opposite of that coach, right? The coach is like, look, we love each other. Look at us. But it's like, no, the, the, the sort of activism of the women is quiet, but it's also through poetry. You know, the poem itself is, is that um, speaking back. But it's a very different tone. But love is a good idea, we think. Why on earth not? You know, it's just, it's very human and, and really different from Amichai's. We're kind of grandiose about darkness and light and the Holy Land and the God zones and history. You know, it, this really turns it into a domestic scene um, and places it in a domestic scene. And then it just, all of those elements kind of come out in a different light. You know what this reminded me of? And I just... I went and Googled it up because I was like, did I invent this passage? But I this what reminded me of, um, so the the novel The Hours, um, which was adapted into the movie that won Nicole Kidman her Oscar by Michael Cunningham. There's a passage where he's writing from the perspective of Virginia Woolf in this in this passage. So this isn't actually Virginia Woolf, but as she's thinking about the themes that are worthy of writing, it says, men may congratulate themselves for writing truly and passionately about the movements of nations. They may consider war and the search for God to be great literature's only subjects. But if men's standing in the world could be toppled by an ill-advised choice of hat, English literature would be dramatically changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. 
I will say that that the beasts line, though, the the well-fed beasts, I immediately, my hackles went up. Like, I immediately tensed. Because I was early enough in the poem that I, I didn't know, and this may just be the posture that I'm in right now in this moment in history, but talking about Jews in Jerusalem as, you know, beasts that consume... I, I didn't immediately see that this was going in a gender direction and I immediately like tensed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone else had that really action. That, that seems accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I also was like, ooh. <laughs> Mimi, thank you so much for bringing all of these poems to us. Um, we also... This was so fun. This was so fun. <laughs> so just it. what I was about to say, it's such a joy to talk about poetry at all especially to look at poems with the three of you. In our show notes, we're going to include links to all of these poems, as well as a couple other poems by each of these poets um, that you can check out if you're interested. Can I also give a shout out to Alicia Ostricker's poetry criticism? I only this year have been reading her classic book of criticism called Stealing the Language, which is all about the history of women's poetry in America. I think starting from like the 19th century or actually, no, sorry, maybe the 17th century. Now that I remember, I'm, I'm like already in the contemporary period. I read it because she was coming to this incredible conference, the first annual conference of Yetzirah, which is a new Jewish poets organization that was founded a little over a year ago. I went to the conference in June and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to see her. Like, I have to read this, you know, like I just have to know. And of course I didn't finish it and I'm still like slowly going through it. But it's, I mean, I told her, I was like, it's just amazing. If you are interested in learning more about feminist poetry, about women's poetry, like it really is an incredible text. And it was published in, I think it was 1983. And I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my God, there's stuff in here that just feels so contemporary. Poems from the 60s, the 70s, like from all these different time periods that are just speaking to essential feminist things that we, that many of us can relate to. And also just really powerfully analyzing how women poets kind of like push their way through, you know, into our canon. So it's such an amazing book. And she's an amazing human being. She's really, really wonderful. We got to take a class together. And at the end of the class, she was just like reciting George Herbert from memory. And it was just the most beautiful experience. So big shout out to Alicia Schicker. And and she's 85 and she's still going to conferences. Like I have to say, in in researching these three women, I something about like born in the 30s and 40s in New York and, and the fact that they lived very long lives into their 80s and 90s. And I just I developed like a real love seeing their photos as well. It's like, wow, these women are so amazing and strong and like also kind of built like birds, constructing these like fragile but powerful poems. Yeah, really cool to learn about these three women side by side. All right, well, I think we've already almost verged into our endorsements. So let's jump in fully. Zahaba, would you like to go first this time? 
Sure. So I am going to endorse the PJ Library podcast Afternoons with Mimi, not our Mimi. Rude of you to do another podcast and not tell us, Mimi. (laughs) Nine years in. Yeah, so Afternoons with Mimi, Mimi in the sense that that some people use it as a a grandmother name. Basically, it's a storytelling podcast that PJ Library has that's geared at younger kids. They have two podcasts. This is the younger one. I would say that if if you have children aged probably three to seven-ish, my just about five-year-old, what we listen to in the car, the premise is that there's a boy who is only referred to as kiddo uh, in the podcast who spends every afternoon with his grandmother after school. And so this is like you get this condensed peek into his afternoon with his grandmother, which always includes some storytelling. And so you have the frame story of him arriving at her house and whatever's going on with him. And he has this conflict with a friend or he has a play date coming up or he's frustrated with his baby brother or something, whatever it is. And then there's the story. Sometimes the story is uh, original for the podcast episode. Sometimes it's her reading aloud for something in the PJ Library catalog, but it's nicely done, engaging for kids. Uh, There's good holiday connected or Jewish lesson or calendar connected content. It's also, I don't know whether to present this as a pro or con or neither, just a point of fact, but it's, it's really not orthodox. What I mean is not like, and it's very PJ Library in that sense. Like, it's not aggressively any denomination, but I just think that a lot of the, like, Jewish audio media that's out there is very orthodox. Um, And especially even the Mimi's pronunciation of Hebrew words feels like very, I don't know, it feels very American reform to me in a very sweet way, actually. So, yeah, Afternoons with Mimi, they're pretty short episodes. They could be anywhere from, let's say, like, six to 12-ish minutes. Great for short car rides with kids. Nice. That sounds great. Great. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? I recently watched the Mike Birbiglia special on Netflix called The Old Man in the Pool. And Mike Birbiglia is a stand-up comedian, but really a storyteller. I think he does something similar to what these poets have done, which is he is so careful in how he constructs his stories that you don't realize the journey you're on until the end or you're halfway in it. He's pulling threads constantly. And in The Old Man in the Pool and in some of his other specials that I've seen, he doesn't do the typical comedian, like, you know, sort of blank behind them in a stool. And he he, he uses the stage and set design really well. I love The Old Man in the Pool. I feel like I'm facing 40 and like a changing body. And this is his story. He always kind of talks about health issues, but this is his story of his body and his mortality and himself as a father and figuring out what to do with this body of his. He's so funny. He's so careful in in his craft. So I really want to recommend The Old Man in the Pool with Mike Birbiglia. He is married to a Jewish female poet, Jen Stein, whose work I have not read, but um, yes. What? Sorry. Yeah. Jen Hope Stein. 
that like really took a like that was like a little mic drop at the <laughs> yeah. end. I was like, yeah. huh, well, I wonder where this is going. I'm Googling yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, his special, the new one, is about the birth of his daughter and how he never really wanted to be a father, but you know, this journey. And he reads some of her poems in it. She seems really cool. That's so cool. Um, all right. Well, I'm excited to check out her poetry and the special. Yes. Hila, what do you have to endorse? Well, now I have a lot of things that I'm thinking. I, you know, just talking about Mike Birgulia reminded me of Ali Wong um, because, oh my God, every comedy special of her. And I can't remember like which one is which with like the titles, but I think the the latest one where it's just... You know, there are times when I listen to her and I'm like, this is poetry. Like, <laughs> the metaphors that she comes up with are so brilliant that, like, and they're just over-the-top hilarious. But I'm like, the, the the timing, you know, the choice of, of the order in which, you know, the pieces of the joke come out, it's just so perfect. I think she's a genius and I, I love everything she does. So, but I was going to self-promote because, like, why not? Please. I'm going to be doing two upcoming um, online readings on Zoom. The first one is on December 14th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. That's going to be, it's all Jewish poets. And there's a ton of them, so I can't list everybody, but I'll, I'll get you guys a link for it. And um, it's all poetry for Hanukkah. So I guess that's like... Is that the eighth night, maybe? I think it's the eighth night. The 13th is, is the seventh night, I think. Okay. Yeah, so it's the eighth night. It was December 14th. Um, so that'll be fun. That's on Zoom. Another one on Zoom on December 19th. Um, so I can share links to that. And I opened a shop online called WTF Muse. And it all came out of like a day where I was just feeling really like annoyed about writing and not feeling inspired, which is pretty often. And so I just wrote like WTF Muse and I made like an angry cat, you know, put an angry cat face on it. So that was like the first inspiration. And then the second one is just that like all the stuff with AI as a writer has been like really pissing me off. <laughs> I work as a director of communications in my day job. And so like everything AI related just freaks me out. Um, so I made a t-shirt that says writer, not robot. And it's got a really cute little robot guy on it. They come in mugs, they come in sweatshirts, they come in t-shirts. So if you're looking for a holiday gift for the writer in your life, check out WTF Muse. <laughs> I love that. That is so awesome. I have a very talkless tactical endorsement and then, um, Whatever is the opposite of that. So the tactical one is something called stickum, which is glue for candles. Basically, you know the part of Hanukkah where you are trying to put candles in your Hanukkah and they won't go in because there's a bunch of wax melted in there and you have to either like spend 10 minutes digging the wax out or you like melt the bottom of the candle like a bunch of times, burn yourself, eventually you stick it to the existing wax and then you can light your candles. That's the story of my entire life. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> or your nervous Nelly partner is like, it's going to fall. It's not safe. It's not safe. <laughs> uh, all of these things, very familiar. So this is glue that you basically, it comes in like, um, like a little tub, like a thing of like lip gloss or whatever. And you just like, 
put your candle in the bottom and swish it around and then you put it wherever you want it to go and it does a pretty good job of sticking. I use it for my Shabbos candles, but I think it's going to work significantly better for um, Hanukkah candles because they're smaller. I mean, it works for Shabbos candles, but like I use like huge Shabbos candles. So anyways. Wait, but does it then... Does it help with the the getting like the cleaning it out part at the end? Like, does it make it all come out easily, or is, you still have to clean it? And like, <laughs> you, you'll like, still have to clean it at the end, but you won't have to. You won't. Sorry, yeah, I was like, can it just clean itself? Like, the lady at the sisterhood gift shop told me that what you should do is put your Hanukkah candles in the freezer before you light them because they burn more evenly and don't leave as much residue. I. Oof. Haven't tried this, but that's what I was told by the lady at the sister. That sounds like a literal pro tip. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So anyways, stick them. I will put a link. It's from Amazon. I have not been able to find a non-Amazon source. So even though I try not to buy from Amazon, here we are. And so that's my tachlis um, thing. I... Right before Shabbos, I bought three and had them sent to all the members of my family because I was like, you need this. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all tachlis, but a really wonderful thing that has brought me a lot of joy in the past year. So what feels like several lifetimes ago, I got an MFA in fiction writing and um, there was also a poetry program and I was very good friends with somebody in the poetry program when when we were in graduate school. Much time has elapsed. We haven't really kept much in touch. And then um, about a year and a half ago, I like read a poem and I thought it was really interesting. And I sent it to my friend and I, and we kind of had like a back and forth about this poem. And it was so nice to connect with her and all, and to have that connection not just be like, what's going on in your life? And, and have it actually be like us digging into this poem together that we started doing it every week. So we have Poetry Thursdays and... We alternate. Uh, we alternated picking a poem, sending it, and we we sometimes like end up talking about poems that we hate. Like it's not it's not always a love fest about the poems, and we don't always agree. But it is such a light <laughs> in my life to have this like text conversation about poetry that's just kind of like ongoing in my life. Um, so that was with my friend Mary. And about a year ago, I think, we added in my friend Jen, who's also a poet. And so the three of us are on this chain and we send each other poems and we talk about poetry. And it's not, we're not as good as about like, Every Thursday morning, someone sends a poem and everybody like thinks about it and sends a response. But like, it's still a pretty consistent chat of poetry related conversation. And I've read a ton of poems that I would otherwise definitely not have encountered. And it also like, it makes me want to read new poems and like find something really good to share. Like, you know, it's like when you go to a potluck and you know the other people at the potluck are really good cooks. It's like, I'm on this chat with really great poets like I gotta bring my a-game so I have like read a ton more poetry this year than I have recently and it's just such a delight so if you listen to this episode and you were like this is fun and really interesting or if you like love poetry find someone else who loves poetry and have like a little poetry group text because times are tough 
everyone is feeling a lot of things and taking some time to really dig into some poems can really bring some some beauty to your day. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this was extremely fun. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, and thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. And an extra big thank you to Hila for joining us. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to our show because we'd love to hear what you think about this show and any ideas that you have for things we should talk about on future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes every month. Mimi, thank you so much. Thank you, Tamar. Sahava, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, Mimi, for prompting us to do this. This was great. And Hilal for joining us. This was amazing. It really was. Thank you. This was so much fun. Hilal, what a joy to have you back. We will certainly have you again. All right. See you all next month.